What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 135. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, Paul and I assess how working from home has been for the last five months, and we talk about planning the tech and data collection on a massive CRM survey. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, how's it going working from home? It's interesting. <laughs> let's say that. I was supposed to have some vacation time because we get a generous four weeks of vacation on staff at the school that I work. And we've been so busy with a variety of projects that I've had no vacation. Just for reference, it is now the middle of August. What is today? The uh, 14th? 14th. Yeah. Yep. So we're recording on the 14th. This is going to come out in about a week and a half. Oh, about a week. We're recording a little later than normal. And yeah, it's just been kind of crazy, brutal, getting things up to speed, get everybody in gear. And also we've taken on a lot of extra projects, partially because we have to and partially because we can. How's it been for you? You know, busy, busy, busy. It's it's almost shockingly so because I, I just read news articles about people unemployed and, and not having work. And I just by luck of the draw had put myself into a position that was already relatively secure with what I was doing on multiple fronts and already remote. So I, I really saw no slowdown. And in fact, just telling you before we started, I, I have so much that I have due like right now on multiple fronts from mm-hmm. archaeology to podcasting to to some other things. And it's just like there's not enough there's not enough hours in the day to be honest right a lot of times now i work all the time we have no kids we have no pets and i don't consider i get paid for it in some cases but like when i'm editing a client's podcast sometimes we're just sitting down watching netflix or something and i've got my headphones in and i'm editing and i and i'll usually watch my time on that one because I record my time and maybe I'll, I'll knock 20 minutes off if I really am watching Netflix <laughs> on <someone's laughs> podcast you know i want to be uh want to be honest about the time there but you know i i don't really consider that work even though it is work so Normally, I use my weekends for work as well. You know, I'll, I'll sit down in the morning or in the afternoon on a Saturday or Sunday and just catch up on some stuff for the week, right? Mm-hmm. Well, since we've been RVing for the past almost two months, in fact, it's a week shy of two months right now, we've been, I don't want to say moving every weekend, but we've been moving many weekends just because we had a lot of stuff we wanted to accomplish in this first stint out. And weekends are when we move because I have like real the client-based, time-based work during the week. And, and and that's the only time I can do it. So Saturday and Sunday have really been drive days for us, uh, mm-hmm. where typically we'll spend the night, just one night someplace on a Saturday, and then check into the next park or whatever campground on a Sunday, which is totally destroyed the time I used to have <laughs> to do stuff on the weekend. I mean, I'll still wake up early in the morning because we won't leave until nine or 10. So I'll get something done. But it's like, the rest of the day. So we're back in Reno right now, though. We got here a few days ago and we're here for three weeks. So I'm sitting in my office 
and these couple weeks, this this could be the last podcast I record in this office. Although I think I'll do our next show from here because we're going to be here another two weeks. So I think I'll make that. And then we're gone. We're packing everything up and heading on the road for, well, until next spring, depending on what we're going to talk about in a couple segments. So, wow. so yeah, so this is kind of a between guests episode. And along those lines, if you have a project or something you want to come talk to us about on the Archaeotech podcast, then let's talk about it. You can find us, you can find the link to schedule a recording under the schedule and interview text. It just produces a pop-up where you can access the calendar. And that's over at arcpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech. And we've actually moved our recording day too. It was on Tuesdays. Now it's on Thursdays in the afternoon Pacific time. So check that out. Hopefully I've got my calendar all sorted out for that. I've got like 16 calendars I've got to adjust because of that adjustment. So what we wanted to talk about in this first segment, at least, is work from home. We we did a lot of stuff early on in this COVID crisis, talking about different applications and different things you can do, you know, different video conferencing things to make working from home work. And not just working from home for anybody, but really for archaeologists, people in the field. What can you do? Well, we wanted to just kind of follow up with ourselves and see how that's been going. So... Paul, how about you? Because you normally didn't work from home before this. You normally, you know, went in during the week to the school that you work at. Yep. How, how did the change go? And, and let me start by asking, are you guys going back? Because there's a lot of talk about that right now. Are students coming back or are you guys going virtual or is there kind of a hybrid model there? And what's that mean for you? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. That's what everybody's asking right now because there's been a lot of angst and anguish all around the country about what's happening with schools getting back in session. And, you know, it tends to, the, the discussion tends to pit the economy, national economy or local economies against kids' education against health, against childcare, all these things are interrelated. And it seems like you pull on one and you damage something else, you know, and we don't uh, societally really have good answers for these. Because I'm at an independent school, we have a certain amount of leeway. You know, certainly the schools, our peer schools, we all discuss amongst each other, trying to come up with similar plans or sharing our own ideas of what best practice are going to be. But nobody has done this before. Right. You know, we're all flying kind of blind into this. We get the best advice we can from health officials, from uh, researchers, from, you know, all sorts of different points of view. And we're trying to put together a plan that's going to work. Now, when I say we, I'm not in any way involved in putting together a plan. I'm, because I work in IT, I'm basically involved in implementing as best as we can, whatever plan somebody else comes up with. <laughs> right. But to answer your question, <laughs> no, we we are not going back to a in-person schooling scenario, but we are opening the doors to people who need to come in. And so that's kind of seen as an equity issue. And that's mostly the lens we're looking at it from because not everybody has, you know, a bedroom they can go close themselves in for six, eight hours a day to do their work. Not everybody has good internet at home. Right. Some people have family environments that are un, you know, unconducive for a variety of reasons to, to learning. And so they need to get away. So we want to provide a safe space for students to come. But we also want to limit the number of, of students and teachers, because inevitably it'll be some teachers who do come into the space because we want to limit the opportunities for transmission. Now, we have a very tricky situation in our physical layout and that uh, we have a number of different buildings. We've got a few different buildings all on the Upper East Side of New York, but our main building is a 14-story building that in normal situations has about 1,000 people in it and two elevators. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. <laughs> and because of the layout of the building, the best place to have kind of co-working spaces that are going to be able to be set up to have good social distancing, those are on the top floor. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it's absolutely impractical to expect a thousand people in the building on any given day using those two elevators when you can only get, you know, two people per elevator effectively socially distanced. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, also, being in New York, we have this whole question. We don't want people coming in if they don't have to, because the primary way that most people come into school is on public transportation. You know, and uh, if you've seen any news reports, you know, public transportation, especially on the subways, is way, way down, something like 80% versus what it was prior to COVID, you know, so prior to the middle of, of March. So we're trying our best to accommodate people in the safest, most equitable, most nurturing way possible. But it's, again, it's all all brand new to us. And so I'll talk a little bit later maybe about some of the projects we've been doing in order to try to improve distance learning for people, but, uh, you know, and communications and a whole lot of other things. But yeah, to answer your question, we're going into kind of a primarily online mode with open doors for particular reasons for particular people. Okay. That's an interesting model because I, I mean, I, I follow the news a little bit, but obviously I'm not in the real community of people concerned with uh, how schools are going back. I mean, I don't have kids, so it's just not one of the things I'm totally paying attention to, but I haven't heard in just the brief interactions and stuff I've seen of a model like that, where it's, it seems to like, it seems to be like it's all or nothing and where, you know, teachers are maybe going in just to have a place to broadcast from, from a classroom standpoint, mm -hmm. which makes sense because if they don't have great internet home, I mean, if the source doesn't have good internet, then you're really in a world of hurt. Yeah. And so, you know, but, but allowing students to come in and providing them that safe place, that's a really, that's a really cool idea. And I would imagine, well, I don't know, because you're at a, you're at a private school, so people can probably come in from anywhere. They're probably not all within a few blocks of that school, I would imagine, because it is a private school, right? That's correct. We have a lot of people, we're located in Manhattan, but we've got a lot of students who live in, uh, in the Bronx or Brooklyn, and that is a commute, and that's a commute that requires subway travel. Right. And, you know, that's an issue. Yeah, it's stuff I don't even think about, you know, because I mean, there's such a so many people on those things. And I'm sure even while that kind of travel is down, it's probably rapidly increasing as businesses open up. But I don't know, New York's been kind of on the forefront of, of dealing with this whole thing. So maybe New Yorkers well, are... We're kind of on the forefront of getting hit by the whole thing. Well, which makes sense though, because you're New York, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're, you're the most populous city in the United States and you routinely get people in from other countries. It's no surprise that it was huge there first. Yeah, no, certainly. What does this mean for you? I mean, do you have to, as sort of tech support, are you just, you really don't have a choice. You're going in every day. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so for me, you know, I think I, we had a, a session, an episode on, you know, what we expected to come of. I think we gave it some like uh, jokey name, the zombie apocalypse or something uh, early on. At this <laughs> point, I'm not so, I still try to keep my humor about it all. Yeah. But it's harder to make jokes about it. Ever since mid-March, uh, the way that we've worked, the school went entirely online and we in the tech department opened up a Zoom room that we manned daily, 9 to 3.30, that people would just come in, our community members, so students, parents, faculty, staff. And we've basically maintained that. Since school finished in June, since the school year ended, we've been in that a lot just as a department. So we keep face-to-face, -face, but because IT does often involve physical 
equipment. We have been going in. I've only been in a few times, but uh, but my coworkers in our department, there are four of us that primarily deal with tech, and the rest of our department primarily deals with integration. So you know, we're the ones that break, that fix and break things. <laughs> break and fix things sometimes. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we're the ones that keep the network running. We're the ones that keep the servers running. But uh, you know, students take they took their laptops home, and some of those broke, mm-hmm. so they had to send them back to us to swap them for a fixed one so we can send the broken one back to Apple to get repaired. So we've had to manage that kind of a process. We had 108 seniors who graduated this past year. We needed to collect all of their laptops so that we can clean them, recategorize them in the database and send them back out to, I can't remember which grade is getting those ninth graders or sixth graders, but regardless, we have to cycle them through. And we have another grade as well that, that goes from one, you know, from one group of kids to a younger group of kids. So we have to have some sort of physical presence at the school. And in fact, I'm working on, because we're going to have this kind of hybrid approach going into the fall, I've just was working on with my coworkers, the four of us, a plan so that we can all be in the office two days a week and have one day that all four of us are the same day. And we think that that'll be, that'll limit our exposure, but also be able to let us work efficiently as a team. Uh, and so I'm just trying to work through the details of that. So we're going to see. It's um, it's really weird though. I mean, as opposed to you, you're, you've been working principally remotely for a long time. I mean, yes, you do things that require physical presence. You know, you can't survey, at least not with the technology we currently have, you know, f- from the comfort of your home, <laughs> you actually have to put on a backpack <laughs> and go out in the field. Um but my work has been predominantly in person, in present, in the school building, and uh, and that has changed. So now it's been very heavily, as much as we can, trying to make analogs for what we used to do online and then go in for what we can't, we absolutely can't move online. So it's interesting. I am not a big fan of it, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's an adjustment. It, it's a big adjustment. And for me, I'm a principal troubleshooter. I have a, a nose for when I see a problem, kind of figuring out what the parameters are, what the variables are, and what, you know, coming up with tests so I can quickly get to the, the nub of the problem, and then we can work out a solution. And the best way that I come up with answers isn't sitting down and thinking through things by myself. It's sitting down, thinking through things by myself for a few minutes and then go and explain what I thought through to one of my coworkers. Right. And they'll point out flaws in my thinking. They'll remind me of something that I overlooked. And sometimes just the the act of speaking it out loud clarifies my own thought process. And that has really, really fallen apart. Yes, we are looking at each other on Zoom, but it's the, the fluidity of it is is totally destroyed, and so I that breaks down all the time for me, and it's exceedingly frustrating that any kind of problem solving takes much longer than it should in my estimation because it's so much different than it used to be. And that's the facet of this that I'm most interested in because one of the things I feel like that that keeps to an extent I feel like it it, it keeps our progress down as a as a human society is our need for face to face interaction right I mean you watch you watch science fiction and stuff like that and and there's people all over the universe let's say or the galaxy or the solar system or whatever thing that they're in and they're communicating over large distances and they're solving problems and they're getting things done and obviously that's fiction and it's fiction for a reason because it's really hard you know and I, th- I think about conferences, you know, I'm in, I'm in talks with a few people to put on some more virtual conferences for archaeology and 
You know, if, if the only reason the conference exists is for people to present papers, then there's no reason why the virtual conference can't exist, right? Because there's no interaction anyway. Right. You typically can't even ask questions. But as you participated in the first one that we put on, mm-hmm. there was a, a pretty robust question and answer period. I think twice we had it. And... And I think that worked out that worked out really well. And I don't think we were impeded by doing a virtual conference. Now, of course, at the end of the sessions, we couldn't all go have a drink at the bar and have those really fun conversations that we normally have. And those are very different in a Zoom call. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, partly because you can't even like break off really quickly and have a side conversation with somebody else, because most of the time it's not one person talking to 10 people standing around having a drink. It's five little side conversations happening and they just kind of flow and organically change and move. And that is that is so difficult to replicate in this sort of environment. Yeah, you and hit the nail on the head. That is that that particular kind of environment, because it, it becomes one person dominating, lecturing, whatever. While everybody else goes, mm-hmm, and then they take their turns to speak as opposed to the the yeah. more natural way or more natural in that I've done it in my entire life, more natural to me <laughs> way of exactly what you said. I'm in a group of six or 10 people and I'm talking to two of them. And then we kind of talk to the rest of them and then we break off and I'm talking to another one. And then we, you know, and it, it's messier, but that messiness is more comfortable to me because that's how I've done it my entire life. And I don't get that through the Zoom calls. To be honest, it's it's easier to get out of a bad conversation too, because you know when your when your drink is empty, you can make an excuse to turn around and go back to the bar and hopefully come back and talk to someone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I'm not drinking nearly enough when I'm at work. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right, well, let's take a break and we'll come back and keep chatting about this in a second. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code archaeotech that's a-r-c-h-a-e-o-t-e-c-h join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to episode 135 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we are just doing a self-assessment of our work from home activities for the past Man, has it been like four months or something like that? March, April, May, June, July, August. Man, it's been like five months. Yeah, jeez. I can't believe it. And and it's not over too. You know, I've seen plenty of articles that say, and this this leads into what I wanted to talk about. Seen plenty of articles that have said, you know, in in, in March and April, we were like, hey, we're going to, we're going to kick this in the butt over the summertime because heat, right? Everybody's like, well, quote, it's hot. So we'll kill a virus because the common cold typically goes away in the summertime. Although just about everyone's probably been sick in the summertime at least once. I have heard other reports that say it's not necessarily the heat, but it's the lack of staying indoors and confined with each other that winter typically provides. You end up going outside. That's what I've always heard. Yeah, exactly. So it's not necessarily the heat that does it, but here's the problem. 
we were stuck inside for two months and then summer hit Memorial day hit and everybody crowded around each other on the beaches outside Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're still doing it. And then there were no concerts, there were no sporting events. And now people are congregating to those things that are opening in, in limited capacities, but they're congregating to them. And it's almost like, you know, it's like when you try to cut back the weeds in your lawn or something like that, you don't quite do it good enough. And they come back with a ferocity in like a month. I think that's, I think that's what this has done. And I mean, there's been like a thousand deaths a day in the past few weeks, a lot of them coming from Florida and it's just like, man. And so we're, so we're quickly coming to a point where this is not going to be killed over the summertime, right? It's going to continue through the fall, more than likely get worse. The The flu pandemic of 1918 got worse the following fall. You know, it kind of started in the winter, just like this one did. The following fall was their second wave. They're like legit second wave. And it was bad. And, uh, and that's when most of the people died. So I think we're, I, I hate to say it, but I think we're headed straight for that. The one benefit that we have is that there may be a vaccine between now and then, or at least maybe halfway through the year if, if the predictions are right. And hopefully that will start to nip this in the bud. But the point I'm making as it relates to this podcast, just to bring it back to the back to the show, is we have to start getting used to what we're doing. You know, we have mm-hmm. to. And do you think that's even possible, Paul, especially you? Like I my my work again, I, I mean, this like this podcast recording that we're doing, you know, sure, I did a lot of in-person podcast recordings with clients, but they quickly transitioned to podcasts just like we're doing. I'm in Nevada. You're in New York City. Uh, we've only met each other, I think, once mm-hmm. in person. And yet we're able to still do this podcast every two weeks. And there's literally no problem with it, except for when I don't pay attention to my calendar. And Paul's <laughs> like, hey, you're going to record? <laughs> that never happens. Right? <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> that never happens this last Tuesday. <laughs> I think that happened twice this week. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, aside from that, you know, th- and my other work with, with Dunsafe, that is inherently remote. You know, occasionally I've flown to a client, but that's usually for at least an initial onboarding and training or a, or a post-implementation and training. But that's pretty common as you fly to them, you help them do their training and develop a training plan. And it's just easier to spend a whole day with them and do that in person. Because if you set up a two-hour call with a client and tell them, okay, spend the rest of your day, the next six hours going over this thing, they're not going to do that, right? They're like right. done after the two-hour call is over. So if you go there a little more productive, but we haven't been able to do that either. And guess what? Still working out just fine uh, and everything's working okay. So how do we get the rest of the world, like your industry, you know, schools and things like that, just used to this kind of thing? Because I feel like everybody is dealing with it and not really coming up with solutions that are really good. They're just making their way through, hoping that it ends at any moment and they can go back to normal. And I think we need to think from an archaeological standpoint, from our work standpoint, we need to start thinking a little more long-term on stuff like this and, and how that's going to go. And I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And after that, I want to talk about project planning because I'm dealing with COVID-19 stuff and trying to plan a project that's going to go on in two weeks. So we'll, we'll bring it back to that. But do you think there's a possibility that with this next semester where you're working, that people can kind of get used to this or is everybody just expecting it to end at some point and go back to normal? No, I don't think that, you know, the, the mood in and around the New York educational community is pretty pessimistic, at least amongst the people I've spoken to, um, in that we're all planning for it to start in some capacity and then have to get shut down by mid-November. And then everybody says, actually, I mean mid-October at the latest. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel the same way. I think that you know, what you were talking about, everybody opening things up back on Memorial Day or the 4th of July and going out to parties and whatnot. And then we saw a spike 
in cases after that. I think that we're going to start seeing another spike. And you, you actually you mentioned the second wave of the uh, infection of 1918. And oh, geez, that really scares me because I've been referring to our second spike or second wave already, mm-hmm. talking about what happened in the summer as opposed to what happened in the, the late winter, early spring. But what if that really isn't the second wave? That was a ripple out from the, the hot spots like New York City out to the places that thought that they were okay, like Texas and Florida. And now we're going to see that ripple just like on a pond come back the other way. And I guess not like a pond because it's going to increase, but then we're going to start seeing th- this amplified again because people are going to be spending more time indoors because it's getting colder and more kids are at school and more people are going back to work. And so you're going to have more people concentrated and spreading the disease. Ah, uh, geez, I'm really worried about that. That's that's actually what I think is going to happen. But to, the, to your question about like how we're dealing with that as educators, um, for the most part, I don't think anybody's holding their breath that it's going to end anytime soon. And I think everybody expects that regardless of what happens, even if it does miraculously go away in, you know, a month from now, you know, it mutates in a funny way that makes it, you know, much less virulent. Even if that happens, we expect that there actually are a lot of lessons learned here from working online. And some things have transitioned quite well to online learning. And so we expect that we're probably going to have some kind of blended schooling system going forward or systems because we don't really have a unified schooling system in the country. And I think that that's actually probably what's going to happen as well. That, uh, you know, regardless of how long we're stuck socially isolating from people, even if COVID is licked, we're going to be going into, we're going to retain some sort of a blended system going forward. And there have been things that actually work in this remote environment. So, for example, I was having a meeting with some teachers and I asked them, you know, how's it going for you? This was, you know, a couple months ago while school was still on. And, and a teacher who's not especially technically savvy, but who teaches fourth graders said, you know what, for my fourth grade art class, it's so much easier. I said, well, how do you mean? She's like, one kid, the, the, the rambunctious kid in the class can't monopolize the attention of the class. They can't disrupt everybody. Uh, yeah. it, it, that compartmentalization of it, you know, looking at that, that Brady Brunch grid of all of us on the, the computer screen actually works to the benefit of certain situations. And I thought that's, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that because my dealing with that, even though I'm very happy to see my coworkers every time they pop into the Zoom, my experience with that has been really isolating and very much suboptimal. But you know, there there are in certain situations good aspects. I'm sure that that's just one example I can I can, you know, say anecdotally, but I'm sure that people are looking into this from a much broader perspective and finding things that that actually do translate into this online world better than maybe would have expected. Well, plus in the example of the fourth grade teacher in, in like a craft time, they're not saddled with cleanup. <laughs> so that must be another well, side benefit. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. But that, that also highlights what I was saying before about childcare. Yeah. Everybody that I know that has young children, childcare is an issue, especially if it's a two-parent family and both of them have uh, have jobs through this, then neither of them have lost them. They're both kind of trying to scramble around work hours and school hours and feeding their kids lunch and cleaning them and taking care of whatever else has to be done in the household. And that's really difficult. And so I know that a number of people are looking forward to school just for the childcare aspect of it. Suddenly the kid isn't my problem. I can get back to my work or back get back to my, you know, some semblance of a life that I used to have, which doesn't mean that they don't love their kids and cherish their kids, but it, you know, sure. 
it's difficult, especially with young kids. It, it can be extremely challenging. So we're going to see what happens with that. Uh, I sound very pessimistic, don't I? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it is what it is, though. Shoot, I quoted Trump. Anyway, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> how does he just ruin phrases, right? <laughs> like, like, make America great again. First off, he had four years and it still needs to be made great again, but we're not going to talk about politics. Anyway, just to kind of talk about a different medium for doing this, and, and this still pertains to archaeology as a field too as well. Did you ever, and I, I think we briefly talked about this, but I, I want to more specifically talk about it because I'm shocked that it hasn't come around, but did you ever try Second Life when it was when it was getting real big? Yeah, I did for a little bit. I didn't care for it, but I played with it a bit just to experience what it was about. Yeah, I think the biggest problem with Second Life is there was no objective. I think people were, were had too much freedom. It's like that. I always think about, I, I equate Second Life with the Matrix movies, right? Because in the... I think when, in, I can't remember what movie it was, but it was when the fake FBI agent was explaining to Neo, uh, probably the first one, he was explaining how it worked. And he's like, in the beginning, we tried to create a utopia for humans, but it failed. Like they just wouldn't take to the programming. <laughs> he said they all just kept, they couldn't handle it. Like psychologically, they needed things to do. They needed adversity. They needed things to overcome and stuff to do. And and just, just living in this utopia world, which I try not to equate that with Star Trek either, because... Star Trek seems like kind of a utopia, but I actually want that one to be true. <laughs> anyway, and, and I think of Second Life in that way, too, because there was no... Sure, you could build stuff, you could go places, but there weren't a lot of people in there, and there wasn't really anything to do. But I'm surprised in this world of Zoom calls, because like you mentioned, you don't really feel fulfilled in the way that you do with human face-to-face uh, -face interactions when you're sitting on a Zoom call talking to somebody. And and part of that is what we talked about in the first segment is, you know, if it's more than one person, well, you can't have those side conversations break off because you've, you're looking at the Brady Bunch and only one person can really be talking at a time. Now, if you have a Zoom Pro account, you can start a breakout room, but it's hard to go in and out of those, right? It's not as fluid as just having a conversation. No, it's not as fluid. That's the thing. You say to the host, hey, yeah. toss so-and-so and me into a breakout room. And it's usually not because the conversation just naturally drifts that way. It's because we have to talk about something important right now. And two other people are talking about something important right now in the same room. So we have to physically go to a different breakout room. Well, physically, virtually. <laughs> right. You can't kind of side listen to them and, and you know, maybe interject or come back to it like we exactly. probably do as humans. Yeah. Now... So the other the other aspect that you mentioned was you just don't feel uh, like emotionally fulfilled having a conversation with someone on a Zoom call and even if you've got video on there's really nothing to do it's like it's like what do you do you're sitting here there's nothing to interact with it's just you're staring at each other through the camera and a lot of times people don't have the internet for that so you don't even mm -hmm. have the video on and it's just audio and you're just going back and forth and when the conversation's over you're done you hang up right but with second life you can do all those things and, and you actually are doing other things too. Even if you're just manipulating yourself with a, with a keyboard, you're moving around, you're, you're, you're at least doing something with your hands. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And you can actually turn on the microphone and physically talk to people. And the cool thing about Second Life, I just got, I, I haven't actually popped in in probably a year. Well, I think I went in shortly after this whole COVID thing started just to see if there was like an influx of people and there was not. But you can actually, it's got proximity volume levels. So if you're getting closer and closer to somebody, the volume gets louder and louder as you get closer to them. And it, it has all the things that we want in face-to-face -face human interactions. And yet still, it didn't 
explode in popularity as uh, I think they missed a huge opportunity for advertising personally, but it didn't explode in popularity like I would have kind of expected it to. I don't know. But I think I think something along those lines would probably be the answer if this were a long-term solution. I think Zoom's going to go away from that standpoint and getting into more of a virtual world like some of those science fiction movies that have been out and like all of the online multiplayer online programs and stuff that people have, you know, the kids and millennials and, and hell 30 year olds are just used to doing that. So. Yeah, no, it's funny. You, um, this, you said this kind of in passing about gestures and that was something that, that I noticed too, that been problematic for me on these zoom calls. And it was also where, where I noticed it in fact was in the online conference that we did. I talk with my hands all the time. I'm half Italian. <laughs> and most of the time I'm sitting close enough to the camera that my gestures are off screen. <laughs> right. You right. Know? And when I see myself, it just looks uh, not ridiculous in the same way that the first time you hear your <laughs> recorded voice sounds like, that's me. Oh my God. I sound like that. No, it just, it just, <laughs> what I'm trying to convey is literally truncated because you can't see my hands because they're off screen. And so what I noticed actually in that conference was that I was giving slides and I've given those slides. I've given a talk similar to that plenty of times. It's part of my class that I teach. Every time that I teach a class, I have slides and I'm pacing in front of those slides and I'm like putting my hands right up on the, on the screen showing this and showing that because yeah. I'm very physical about what I want to point out. I could do it with a laser pointer, but I'm just more comfortable walking up and pointing. And I kept on doing that to the uh, presentation I was giving. Which, of course, nobody else could see but me. <laughs> so that, that's a matter of training myself differently. But it, it's all these, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. All these things that are just slightly wrong or slightly different that I'm used to, that five months in, I still haven't gotten myself fully around. And I think it's because it's five months and I'm over 50. And, you know, <laughs> it's going to take a, a, another hundred years or so before I get there. Well, and I think I think stuff like that, like Second Life and things like that, I mean, right now you have to log in through a computer. And if you want to speak or anything like that, you really kind of need a headset. I mean, you can use your computer speakers and microphone, but it just doesn't work very well. Right. And I think it's not going to be... It's like we need another technology to become more commonplace before stuff like that is commonplace. And I think that technology is VR. VR headsets are coming way down, but they're still in the world of gaming. When VR headsets become a part of your work life and you guys are, you know, you're, you're staying at home and you're popping on a VR headset to, you know, virtually manipulate somebody's laptop and show them how to do something or, you know, operating some sort of thing remotely, then, and that becomes common, then those interactions will become common. But then, you know, we run into the problem of, you know, all the all the ways in movies where that goes wrong. Like we become totally fat and lazy and live completely VR. And then you got to ask yourself, well, it's about quality of life. Do I care that my actual physical human body is wasting away in a chair somewhere where I'm having a great time in virtual reality? <laughs> is that is that really that big of a deal? I don't know. That's an ethical question we'll have to answer later. <laughs> it wasn't that asked in WALL-E. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And did you see the Bruce Willis one just in, in the last part of the segment here? What the heck was that called? Surrogates. I think it was called surrogates where they took it a slightly different way. It wasn't VR at all. You you basically controlled an Android representation of yourself, like a cyborg representation that looked exactly like you. It looked exactly human. 
And you don't know that at first in the movie because everybody looks perfect. But then at some point it goes to somebody in a house and it's not even like a nice house. Like it's a dirty, you know, rundown house. And he's got like a ripped up stained t-shirt on and he's kind of pudgy and fat. And, you know, the system's kind of taking care of your functions. But when you go to work for the day, you send your surrogate out and you don't even you don't even go out in, in person. And I I think that's the that kind of stuff. And VR, either way, us staying at home is the long term potentially very damaging thing about a pandemic. You know, when people get used to staying at home, we get a lot of agoraphobia and people just, you know, technology like that ends up becoming the norm. I think we're, we'd have to be in a pandemic for several years for that to really become part of our culture. But yeah, who knows? Anyway, let's bring this back to technology and archaeology in the third segment. So we're going to do take a break real quick and we'll come back and talk about that back in a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 135 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we've been kind of doing a work from home assessment, but we're going to transition a little bit and, but not really because still working from home, <laughs> but talking about, uh, yeah, planning and, and I guess managing projects and data for archaeology. And we're going to talk about something big that came up for me in the last couple of days, but even on a slightly smaller scale, I've got about a 7,500 acre survey that we're going to do, I mean, theoretically into this month, but we're still waiting on the lead agency to give a scope of work for this. We're supposed to have it two weeks ago. So we'll see if this even happens this year, because in this particular area, even though it's a hundred degrees in Reno today, it will be, and this is in Northeastern Nevada. I mean, it'll be covered in snow by mid-October. So there's, Oof. yeah, there's, there's no way we'll be able to get out there or the rains usually come in end of September, early October. And when that happens, you can't even drive on those roads. Really. It's a mine. So you can drive on the hall roads, but we often need the side roads and things like that. And it just becomes undoable. So, and, and unsafe. And if you want to know about unsafe driving on roads, listen to the last episode. I think it was 195 of the Sierra Mark podcast, where one of our co-hosts, Heather, talked about flipping over a vehicle and the lessons learned from that. <laughs> and they're lucky they walked out alive, to be honest. Lesson number one, don't do that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, so yeah, I'm trying to navigate some things. Being a digital archaeologist, if that's still a thing, but being a digital archaeologist is actually helpful because I can remotely control all the data. I don't have to have any physical interaction with my crews. I don't have to hand them paper. I don't have to receive paper from them. I'm not handing them tablets. They're using their own devices to record. So I'm not concerned with cleaning them at the end of the day, doing all that stuff. They are who they are. And ideally on this short project that I'm going to do in a few weeks, I'm still, I'm still struggling with how to do this legally, but Ideally, they'd have their own vehicles as well. But that really does limit my pool of people that have access to this because they need to have Mine Safety and Health Administration training or MSHA training, and they need to have a high clearance four-wheel drive vehicle. And more than likely, they're going to need to have, be able to camp out on site too with us. So I need I need like one more person that can do that. I've got two, and I need like one more that can do that. But that's a really strict list of qualifications. And really the separate vehicle thing is just for COVID. You know, I don't want to have to stress somebody out over being in a sweaty vehicle with people breathing up a storm at the end of a hot day of survey. And I mean, we'll have hand sanitizer all over the place and wipes everywhere, but I don't want somebody to have that be a stress point for them. So the way to cover that is just bring your own vehicle. But 
I can't cover your vehicle on my insurance. <laughs> and, that, and that becomes an issue. If you run into a haul truck, well, if you live and run into a haul truck or you damage something on the mine or you damage your own vehicle, I mean, you're kind of on your own. And I'm not really sure where I am, where my professional responsibility comes in on that. And I'm not sure I want to put that stress on people either. So, you know, we're trying to figure that out. Yeah, that sounds like a complicated process trying to deal with that. I hadn't even thought of individuals, auto insurance. Right. Oof. Yeah. I mean, it all it all comes down to it, man. I've got $4 million in general liability and I've got my own auto policies, of course. Mm-hmm. And my general liability actually covers auto accidents as well if if something happens with a on a client's project, right? So if I forget to take my car out of park and don't put it in the little stops at the front of the mine office and it rolls into a building, I'm covered. You know, I'm totally covered. And and my general liability covers me if I screw up the project and and they plow over a national register site and I didn't recognize it. It also covers me there, you know, for, well, up to $4 million if they decide to sue me. So that's why I have that. But I can't expect my techs to have that. Right. You know what I mean? I, I can't expect that them to be covered by that. And I'm going to have them on my payroll. So the only way they would even be really covered under their own policy is if they were a 1099 contractor, which I also can't do. So... Ugh. Yeah, it's complicated. So speaking of complicated, though, this is a small project. This is a 7,500 acre survey that's probably going to take and actually we're we're knocking out some of it. We don't have the numbers on this yet, but it's going to be significant because we don't have to survey. We can spot survey as we see fit on greater than 30% slope, but generally we're going to mathematically remove everything that's 30% slope or more, which is a lot. I'm thinking it's going to cut the acreage in half and then we can just spot survey it. If we see something that we think needs to be looked at, it's probably going to be like a mining feature or something like that. That's a relatively small project. Now, yesterday I got word of a project that I'm going to bid on with a prime that I've worked with before for a 133,000 acre survey. And just trying to, yeah, just trying to logistically figure out the data needs for this project is massive. I mean, and, and there's a lot at stake here. I'm only doing the field work and the site record preparation, and I'm, I'm helping with the report as well. Not the full report. That's what the primer is doing. But obviously, there's the site record data that goes on the report. We're responsible for that. You know, some of the field data collection methods, things like that. Those, all those are sections of the report. But just the field work and that portion, which the field work is always the biggest cost of a project, but just the field work is, is coming out to be about $2.4 million. And that's a ton of money. And there's a lot of liability there. There's a lot of things to think about. And if we don't think about our data collection strategies right, right off the bat, I probably have about seven or eight months if we win this project to actually figure this out and, and come up with a good plan for it. But we need to have it solid before we start. Absolutely solid. So that's where I'm at right now. That's where my head's at. (laughs) So how many of those details have to be in the original proposal and how many can you work on afterwards? Well, here's the thing. It's a government contract and it's a special situation. So really none of it has to be in the proposal because the only thing that needs to be in a proposal is a giant number on a single sheet of paper and whichever number is lower is going to (laughs) win. But what we're our first responsibility is to put together a project action plan. And they've even they've even got about six months listed out for us to actually put that together. And that information is gonna have to be in the action plan. So I'll have probably until next spring to really figure out. And honestly, I don't need until next spring. I I mean I've done projects like this before. And this this is the nice thing about already being digital, is it's scalable. And that's huge. You know, this is scalable to almost any size. If you've got 
if you've got the right software that you're going to use, you know, the right applications and the right plan for it. It doesn't matter if I record two sites or 500 sites or I, re- or I do 100 acres versus 100,000 acres. It's totally scalable. Or if I have two people versus 50 people, it's still scalable. And that's what's nice about this approach. So what kind of things are you looking at in terms of the tech that you're going to need to bring to bear that might be new or unusual or, you know, what, what, because you've used a lot of different tech in the field in the past. Yeah. What are the the challenges that you're being presented with right now that are ones that you hadn't, you know, had to uh, grapple with before or have new options for how, for how you deal with them? Well, I'll tell you, my biggest problem is GIS and the reason for that is my brain just wants to default to the easy thing, which is rent Trimbles, right? And because I don't own Trimbles, I'd have to rent them. In fact, in this case, I might just buy the Trimbles because if I get this project, I'm probably going to have to get a loan for. Well, if they if they give us if they give us milestone payments, I probably wouldn't have to get more than half a million dollars or so. But I'd have to get a loan for something to start the project to start covering payroll. And then if they are paying us milestones, then I can you know continue to get money in the bank to keep going payroll. But the biggest thing, one of the big big costs is Trimbles. And if I look at it, you know, your average Trimble rental is about $90 a day. And if, so if I look at $180 per day and I calculated it out to about 217 person days with an eight person crew, that's $40,000 just in Trimble rentals. <laughs> so <sighs> yeah. So looking at that and, and I hate to Trimble, right? I don't want to use it. Right? We're fully digital with the tablets and things like that. And that's one of my biggest concerns is that this stuff is changing so rapidly. So I everybody knows that I use WildNote for my field data collection and I work for WildNote. So full disclosure, I don't do a whole lot right now, but I'm on their advisory and you know all that stuff. So they've got me on retainer to talk about CRM stuff. And in fact, if you're hearing this now, head over to WildNote and or it's one of my resources. I'll have the link for it. But I'm doing a lunch and learn on CRM and, and digital data collection with them on Wednesday, the 25th, I think that is whatever that Wednesday is, take a look at those resources because you'll see that by the time this comes out. So anyway, one of the big challenges I have is trying to figure out whether or not the tech I need is going to be there, right? And WildNote recently just gave support for the EOS Arrow Bluetooth recording device, right? Bluetooth antenna. Ah, mm -hmm. Now, that's great, but it doesn't really do me a whole lot of good from a WildNote standpoint because all that does is it gets me submeter accuracy on my photographs, on my single point lat long points, and then I can export those as files that I can open up in a, in a GIS. But, but it doesn't allow me, WildNote doesn't have mapping capabilities. So my other problem is what am I going to map with? What am I going to do datums and points and polygons, you know, features, artifacts, uh, boundaries, stuff like that. What am I going to do that with? And the, the most commonly used thing out there is collector, right? But you can't really use collector effectively unless you have an ArcGIS license to just bring it up into Esri, which of course I'm not going to pay for. So, and I wouldn't give them money even if I had a billion dollars in the bank right now. I'd rather just use QGIS, right? Right. <laughs> so... So collectors out, and there's a couple others. There's Gaia, which which I've seen before. Touch GIS, which I mentioned, I think in the last one. Yeah, you but, did. You know, I you know I actually this is a practical suggestion for you in particular, Chris. But we had a guest on a year and a half or so ago, Edward Gonzalez Tennant, and he's yeah. started up a YouTube channel, Archeo Yeti, with all sorts of like two minute videos of QGIS tips. Nice. So for you, Chris, I would suggest that you talk to him and see if he's got any good suggestions for how you could solve these problems using QGIS, because I think he's pretty good at it. And, you know, he likes sharing the knowledge. So, you know, that might be a good resource for you to call on. Yeah, because I spent an hour this morning trying to change the symbol on a map. Uh, I suck <laughs> at it. <laughs> 
I'm not good at all. Uh, I have a passing a passing knowledge of GIS, and it's one of those things where, man, I use it when I have to, but I've never really sat down and took the time to just understand fundamentally how it all works. I took a graduate class in it in college and I still just like struggle with it every time I have to get in there. I don't know why. It's one of those things that just hasn't clicked with me. I don't use it every day either. I use it like three times a year. Yeah, that's so probably the reason. That doesn't why help. It. Anyway, yeah, no, I'll, we'll find that link and put that in the show notes and I'll definitely check some of that stuff out because I, I could probably use it. I love those little quick tips. So I don't need a 10 minute video for you to get six minutes in and tell me the thing that I looked for in the title. Right. You know, I need, I need quick tips. So... So yeah, GIS is a problem. How are we going to do our mapping? I mentioned that app touch GIS for, um, for iOS, which I absolutely love, but I need to do more research on it to see if it'll pull in, if it'll pull in EOS arrow data, I'm done. That's it. That's my solution, right? That's how we're going to do this. And, and that will be fantastic because one of the things that I think people don't understand, I always tell them when they're buying tablets that if they want to use the GPS on the tablet, they have to get a cellular enabled tablet, at least for iOS. I, I think most Androids are the same way or Android based tablets. But mm-hmm. if you want to, an iPad and you want a GPS antenna, you have to get the cellular enabled one. You don't have to get a cellular plan, but it has to be cellular enabled because they're the antennas are, are, they come together as a package. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that's true if you're using an external GPS antenna. I don't think that matters. I think it still has the, the, the code inside yeah. to be able to read those coordinates. And so you can buy a cheaper tablet if you need to. Yeah, just the logs that can talk to the, that external antenna. Right. Yeah, because all the info is coming through Bluetooth, Bluetooth and the antenna on the antenna is the thing that is reading the, the GPS signal. So, yeah, I actually never really thought about that out loud before, but that totally makes sense. So... Anyway, Touch GIS is an amazing application. And if I can use something like that, that will that's a game changer, right? That'll that'll change anything. Now the one downside to Touch GIS, as far as I can tell, and there may be a solution to this, I just don't have enough experience with it yet, is I need to get everybody on the same feature set, right? On the same uh, data dictionary, as Trimble would call it. So I need to make sure the same people are calling things the same thing, because I don't think I can take all my settings that I have developed for you know, my glass features, my metal, my prehistoric projectile points, flakes, stuff like that, all the symbology that I've created. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I can export those settings and import them into another one. If I can, that'll be great. But if I can't, I need to make sure. And that's another problem people have with field tech is I've seen companies with two trimbles out there and they have two completely different data dictionaries in them and different <laughs> symbologies, different recording methods, and people are doing different file names every day and there's no systemization to it, right? And then when it gets to the GIS department, this is why the GIS department costs so much money because it takes them so long just to determine what the hell the field crews did. Right. So that's another thing you got to think about is, you know, you've got eight people out there all potentially collecting GIS data on their own devices, all collecting textual and photographic data on their own devices. So the first thing I need to do on this project is have a really strong training plan and then a really strong for the first few weeks, just tell them, say, listen, we're not micromanaging you, but we're going to look at literally everything you do for the next two weeks to make sure you're doing it right. And there's just no way around that. That makes a lot of sense. And that's one of the things back in the 90s when I worked in uh, at, at MASCA at, at University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, we had our own software for surveying. And when we trained people how to use it, total station surveying, when we trained people how to use it, that was the first thing we'd do is not just tell them how to you know make machine go bing and shoot lasers, but also... <laughs> how to actually categorize their things, how to think about the data they were expecting to collect at a particular site so that they could build categories and subcategories so that once they pulled it into their mapping software, it was already Mm -hmm. categorized for them. I mean, it's a 
yeah. as old as computers, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, but that's really, I, I'm to this day convinced that if you're going to do a project, that's the first thing you have to do is try to think of your categorization and your nomenclature and that kind of stuff before you actually get mm -hmm. out there. Otherwise, you're going to spend far more time cleaning up because somebody spelled something in an alternate way or they didn't subclassify something in a way that you wanted, but in a different way that made sense to them and doesn't work with your project. Or, you know, I don't even have to go through different examples. You, you certainly know. But that's where you're going to find a lot of a lot of problems. And that if you think through it, that's where you're going to preempt a lot of problems. Well, and expanding on that, there's a lot of a lot of machismo in archaeology. You need to check your freaking ego at the door because you might be Paul Zimmerman, PhD, having done this for decades, but you might not think of everything, right? So crowdsource it. <laughs> Get Guaranteed some people together. You, I have not thought of everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with my wife about this particular project just in the last couple... I found out about it literally yesterday. So we've had a lot of conversations about this already. And even though she hasn't been like full-time in archaeology for probably seven years, she's got a lot of good insight to this just mm -hmm. because she's, she's outside of it. You know what I mean? Right. And so... When it really comes down to it, I'm going to have a lot of conversations with the Prime. There's two very experienced archaeologists that are working there that are going to be on this project. And I would, you know, just even if they take all my suggestions and we say, yeah, that's 100% what we're going to do from a data collection and storage standpoint, it's at least it's at least not just me coming up with this and saying this is what we're going to do and then have it have it not work in the future. Right. Mm -hmm. I've done that before as partly because. In the past, you know, nobody, there was nobody to talk to about digital data collection of field information. <laughs> and now there's a lot more people doing it. So a lot of times in the past, I had to just kind of make it up and see if it works. And to be honest, that China Lake project I did and the one before that down in El Centro, we were, we were using tap forms. And I've talked about this before. We were using tap forms. And there are, if I were ever using something like that again, there's a lot of different ways I would do it. Mm -hmm. I think we... We're still very successful in our efficiency, but there's a lot of different ways I would do that now. But there was no one to talk to about it because no one else was using it. No one else was doing it. And so I just kind of had to make it up. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I took all the suggestions from my field crews too, even though they had never used anything like that. And most of them had never even digitally recorded in the field. At the end of the session or at the end of the day, even I would be like, what worked and what didn't? What are your first impressions? You know, cause I need, I need people who know nothing about this to tell me what they think about it. And then we can work on it and improve the system. So I think that's the big lesson on, on all this stuff is just, you know, crowdsource it talk to other people that have done it and then try to improve as you go along. But for a big project like this, I kind of need to make all those decisions ahead of time because we're, we're going to be not able to make any real major decisions on our collection methodology once we start because of the client. So they're going to expect regularity and, you know, some, some consistency. So you preempt as many problems as possible. You check your ego at the door. You, listen to people who actually have to use the, the, the software and the systems that you're designing. You kill your babies if you have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And yeah. move forward as best you can like that. But that's really kind of, um, I don't know that I've ever worked on a project where once we settled on a methodology, it was set in stone. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting challenge. I don't know how common that is in CRM, but in, in academic archaeology, you know, there's more of a fluidity to, to, how you do things once you realize that something is inadequate for whatever reason. Right. I mean, it, it, it just really is uh, just in the last minute here, it really is hard to, 
change. And I know that from working with WildNote and working with, I mean, if you're doing a change in procedure, that's one thing. But if you need to change forms on your uh, fields on your form or something like that, you run into a huge data problem because WildNote won't even let you do that uh, for obvious reasons. You've got data collected against those fields. So if you're like, well, instead of a single select, this needs to be a multi-select. It's like, okay, well, you're gonna have to make a new question. And now you have to decide Am I just going to add this question there? Because I can't delete the single select question. But in reality, you're probably going to duplicate the form and make a new one. And now you've got two different forms on this project that have the same, basically the same name and information. And if you don't, it's best to try to head that stuff off before you get out there. And I know that sometimes isn't easy, but yeah, luckily this is a Nevada project. So the Nevada IMAX forms are not something I can't even change. Right. So that, that takes that part of it out for me, just like the California ones. You can't change those. You can't add to them. You can't take away from them. They're agency forms. Right. And there's some sort of comforting blanket that comes over you when you think about that. Even though I hate the agency forms, uh, it's nice not having to make my own. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, I didn't feel like we had a whole lot to talk about when we came to the recording today, Paul, but I feel like we could keep going for another hour. Oh, easily. I mean, there's so many <laughs> questions around designing projects and then also, like I said, of applying what, what we've learned over these last, this last half year. Wow. It could go a bunch of different directions, yeah. but hey, let's just keep this in our back pocket for some time in the future. Well, yeah. And if we win this, then we'll probably have a lot more conversations and, and Maybe I'll help my own project out and we'll bring some we'll bring some experts on in areas where I need help and and hopefully other people can get help too and we'll just you know try to try to work out some solutions to problems before they happen and try to figure it out. I'd love to bring somebody on who's done some some massive large scale surveys from a digital collection standpoint and just get their, you know, pick their brain on it. So maybe we if you if that's you and you're listening, then uh, you know, hit us up on the podcast. So Yeah, we'd love to have you. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and hit us up if you've done any large projects like this or want to talk about anything else. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And remember everybody out there, keep safe, wash your hands, wear your mask, especially to keep everybody around you safe and just keep that social distance. I hope we all get through this. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.